Psalm chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. So would you stand to your feet, and we are going to look at this. I'm going to read it. You follow along in the Bibles or on the, on the screen, and then we will jump in to uh, unpacking it. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Father, we ask for help today. We pray that you would open our spiritual eyes to see your glory, to know your name. And God, as we as we know your name, as we come to know who you are, God, stir up faith in our hearts. Open our mouths to proclaim your mighty deeds. Father, we pray that you'd be our stronghold, our safe place today. In Jesus' name. One of the things that caught my attention right away about this verse is in verse 9. It talks about that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. Now, if I could summarize, you know, every week is different, isn't it? It's probably different in your lives, but especially as a pastor, my weeks vary drastically. Like like no one week is really alike and some are are on the far scale of, of, of one thing and, and then others are completely the other. And so uh, if I could summarize um, the theme of this past week, it would be kind of verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That word oppressed means literally crushed, okay? So the psalmist is talking about having circumstances in your life that are so heavy, they feel like they're squeezing the life out of you, okay? So, so there, there's one image for your mind, okay? Having circumstances in your life so heavy, they feel like they're just pressing the life out. Now, the next phrase is, he's a stronghold in times of trouble. That word trouble means scarcity or lack or drought, okay? So it's depicting situations that we just don't have enough to handle it. Like we don't have enough money, we don't have enough energy, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough skill, we don't have enough resources, we we don't have the answers to get through this. In other words, something in our life that's bigger than we can handle, okay, that's times of trouble, all right? And so the psalmist starts out talking about that the Lord is a refuge for those people, for those whose health is breaking down, for those who have a death in their family and they lose someone that they depended upon or someone who depends upon them or financial collapse or bills you can't pay or things your family needs and you can't provide or the rebellion of a son or a daughter, watching a loved one destroy their life and the lives of others near them and you, you can't get to them, you can't bring them back. The deterioration of a family or a marriage through conflict or adultery or divorce or betrayal. My two youngest children and I were just going out to eat the other day. And, and then we walked right into a situation of this marriage just falling apart. It was an acquaintance. We re- really didn't, didn't even know the, the people personally by name. But we walked kind of right into that just as we, we went into the restaurant. And, and we had a chance just to sit down and, and pray with them. And, and, and man, I tell you, the thing that hit me was the intense pain 
in, in, in their lives because of this, this, this pressure, this crushing on their lives. Persecution by the world or being slandered by your neighbor. I tell you, one of the great things, two great things came out from me just being able to hang out with, with Solomon John Baptist this last week. He, he kind of went with me most anywhere I went which was really good because he, a couple of things I learned from him is that, that praying for people in need is much more important probably than I give it credit for. Um, one of the things that I saw in him is when, when I told him we're going to visit someone whose relative just died or we're going to, to, to visit someone who's been sick or we're going to, man, like he's, he's ready. Like it's not just, oh, we're going to go, you know, say hello. Like he's, he's got Bible in his hand. He's, he's thinking of promises of God. He's praying when we get there. Man, you can tell he, 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 he prays as if it all depends on God, which it does. So many times in America, I think, well, someone's sick. and Hey, you know what? We're going to get them the best medical care we can. You know what? I know the doctor over there in Tulsa or in Oklahoma City or Houston or wherever. And man, they did a fantastic job with my relative, and they just need to get there because there's some great treatment there. And, I, and, and they got insurance, don't they? Well, that's going to handle things. And you know what? Do we need to make some? You know, we're thinking of all the resources at our disposal. And what, what I learned from Solomon is, you know, when someone's sick in India, if they don't have money, they don't have medical care. You know, like, so all of that's off the table. You know, and, and, and if they're a Christian, they're already on the outs from all the other society. So all those resources are gone. So what do you do? You pray to the God of heaven. He's, he's your answer. The, the other thing I, I learned from him was just the, the difficulty of persecution and, and being slandered. While he was here, things were, people, people that knew he left the country, as soon as they knew he was in the air, they, they began to make power moves against him. You know, and so he's, he's dealing with that, you know, while he's here, you know, as it's unraveling. Injustice, being attacked by an enemy. In those situations, where do you go? I'm asking you personally, where, where do you go? Okay, so when you're being crushed and when you've got trouble, when you've got distress, where do you go? So verse 9 says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Now, what is a stronghold? Well, a stronghold is a high and secure place of protection and safety and retreat. Okay? What I've got pictured in my mind is, maybe you've seen pictures of these, some, some mountain castle perched on the top of a cliff. You know? Have you seen those? Where it's, a, it's this rock fortress that's on the edge of a cliff so that no enemy can get to it so that when the enemy comes you run you get you gather your children and you run to that fortress and you get through those doors and you close those doors and you are safe right you're safe like nothing can touch you the bible's saying the lord is a stronghold so when your world's unraveling, when you got some looming disaster hanging over you, when you feel like you can't get any rest for your mind, you're always thinking about it, it's always on your heart, it's always pressing on you, it's exhausting, you, you just can't get any relief from the pressure of it, your mind can't relax, there, there's no sense of hope, there's no, no sense of being protected or guarded, where do you go? You, you know where a lot of people, and, and this is kind of our habit, we, we want to go on vacation. Right? I mean, that's kind of my tendency, right? In fact, we talk about it that way, right? How many of you, before you leave on vacation, you go, 
I just need to get away from it all, right? Isn't that, you ever say that before? I just got to get away from it all. I just, what do we say, man? My stronghold's going to be the mountains, you know? My stronghold's going to be the beach. My, my stronghold, some of you, Branson, you know, right? The promised land. My, my stronghold, I'll get, I'll get away from it all. Well, you, you know, the problem with that is all follows you, doesn't it? You know, that, that's the curse and blessing of technology is you really don't get away from it all. You know, you just now got to deal with it over your phone, right? And then the even worse thing, you know, I talk about this every time we go away, is the punishment you receive when you get back. You know what I'm talking about? You know, him and I, about 10 miles out of town, we're like, all right. Are you ready to be punished? You know, I mean, we, we had fun. We got away. We rested a little. Now it's time to take your licks, right? Because you, you, now you got to walk right back into it, and it's all snowball, and it's all worse, and you were behind, and now, right, you, you got to catch up. And, and, and so it's really not a stronghold. But what the Bible is saying here in, in, in Psalm 9 is the Lord, okay? The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. In fact, the psalmist will be so adamant about that. As we move our way through Psalms, you're going to see this over and over again. We probably won't look at this Psalm, but let me read, let me read Psalm 18 to you. By the way, this, this teaches us something about prayer right here, okay, that probably I don't do and probably you don't do either that we need to do, okay? Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, and really it's just verse 2. Verse 1 is very short, six words or so, seven maybe. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. That's all verse 1. Now listen, verse 2, one verse. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Nine different ways to say the same thing. Now, why would he say the same thing nine different ways? Well, I think he's teaching us something about prayer. He said, man, you, you, you got to pray this way. This is who the Lord is for you. He is your stronghold. He is your fortress. He is your shield. He is your horn of salvation. He is your buckler. He is your strength. He is your fortress. That's who he is. God is that for you. And if you don't run to him, if you don't learn to run to him, you're going to run to a whole bunch of things that aren't really a stronghold. You're going to look for your security and money and investments and the promises of men and the wisdom of your own mind. You're you're going to look for relief from your anxieties and and distractions. You, you You know the most popular ways that Americans deal with their anxiety it's like computer games and, and social media and snacks, right? That, that's, that's not a stronghold. Man, those things let us down horribly. If you don't seek God for help and healing and joy, you will seek it in something else that will let you down. But God will not let you down as a stronghold. Listen, Psalm, let's, let's look at another Psalm. Psalm 62 Psalm 62 tells us what God does here. Verse 2, he only is my rock, there it is again, my salvation, my fortress, same thing, same thing as a stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. I looked up the word Hebrew in the Hebrew shaken, and it means to totter, to almost fall. Okay, it's, 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 it's wintertime, right? You're getting out of your car. There's a thin layer of snow, ice on the parking lot, and you try to be real careful, and then you do the little dance. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know, like you almost go, you know, you do this thing, and you know, you pull it out, you know, just barely, and you look around, see if anybody saw, you know, and you go in, okay? That's what he's talking about, okay? 
Because all these things, these pressures, these anxieties, these crushing things, they, they, they will make you stumble. They will make you totter in your faith and in, 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 in your own mission of the Lord. But it says, when the Lord is your stronghold, you'll not be shaken. Proverbs 18.10. If I could have picked another verse to preach this sermon out of, like if you'd said, hey, preach the same sermon, but you can't use that verse, I'd have said, okay, that's all right. I'll use Proverbs 18.10. Okay, it says this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Guess what, guess what the word strong tower is? Same word as stronghold over in Psalm 9, okay? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So when the Lord is your strong tower, when he's your stronghold, you won't be shaken and you'll be safe. All right, so I want that. I don't know if any of y'all do. Uh, If you don't, sorry, the rest of the sermon's for me, okay? Because I want that. And so how do I get there, right? How do I run into it, okay, for... So, so using the image here, if your stronghold is up there on the mountain and you're down here in the village and here comes the enemy and here comes the pressure and here comes the attack and you gather your kids and you run up into the stronghold, okay? So what we're asking is, how do we do that spiritually? If the Lord is our stronghold, then how, how do I run into his thick walls, climb its towers, be perched safely in the clouds? How do I do that? I think the answer is in verse 10, 11. I'll give it away in case you don't want to listen anymore, okay? Verse verse 10, 11, know God's name, trust God's name, proclaim God's name. Know God's name, trust God's name, proclaim God's name. Let's look at those. First of all, know God's name. Okay, so verse 10 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. That's what it means to make God your stronghold, to put your trust in him, okay? So who does that? Who, 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 Who trusts in God when the pressure's on? those who know his name. What, what, what is his name? Now, before you think any further, you have to understand that name in the Bible is incredibly significant, okay? It's most likely that your parents named you what they named you because it sounded cool, you know? Or you had an aunt who they really liked or an uncle who was really a corker and they thought, this kid's a corker, so I'm gonna name him that, right? That's probably how you got your name. In the Bible, your name was indicative of your character, your attributes, and what you would do. Okay, your mission, your destiny. So Eve, why, why Eve? Well, Genesis tells us because Eve means life giver and Eve would be the mother of all living things. Abraham, why did God change his name from Abram to Abraham? Because he's gonna be the father of many nations. Even though he's 99 years old and doesn't have a kid. God changed his name to Abraham. Why? Because it's what God's gonna do. Okay, so God's name in the same way is his character. It is his attribute. And so really, what verse 10 is saying is, those who know your name, those who know God, those who know who he is. And by the way, knowing God is the most important thing you will do in your life. Okay? Knowing God is the most important thing. I'm hearing some amens, and I'm glad. Because if you just said, ah, I'd have been really disappointed. Okay? So I'm glad that you are saying amen, because I say amen to that. I say amen to that. I believe that, that it's more important, more rewarding, more life-transforming, more, more joy-giving, more useful than knowing anything about business or knowing about my occupation or your field of study or your sports trivia or scientific theories or philosophy or people or current events or political strategy. Knowing God is more important than any of that. But you know what convicts me? If I had to prove that, like if, if somebody were up here and they said, okay, you say you believe that, 
show me the proof that you believe that knowing God is more important than knowing anything else. Could you prove that? Could you, could you take a look at your life and say, well, see? You, see? you see the determination I put into my Bible? Do you see the time I put into prayer? Do you see the effort I put into grappling with who God is? Do you see this here? It's proof. Could you do that? Or if when you looked at your life, you'd be like, oops. Maybe I don't think it's that important. But I think it is. In fact, so much so, listen what, it's always good to hear what Jesus said, isn't it? Let's listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You see what Jesus said? Eternal life is knowing God. It's, it's knowing who God is. Philippians 3.10, Paul at the end of his life, he's walked with Jesus for decades now. In Philippians 3.10, he says, here's the goal of my life, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Okay, so, so knowing God is pretty important. And by the way, we don't automatically know who he is. I, I think some people think that. I think some people think that, you know, you just um, come out of the womb and you just automatically know who God is. No, you're automatically deceived and confused about who God is. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they may not see the light of the glory of God. See, by nature, we don't know who he is. Okay, we're confused about who he is. All right, so what do we need? Well, we need to know his name. All right, so... So verse 10 is telling us those who know his name, they put their trust in him. So if he's going to be your stronghold, if he's going to be your strong tower, then you've got to know who he is in order to put your trust in him. So where, where, where do we find out God's name? Well, we find it out in the scriptures. All right, so open your Bibles to Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 3. We'll try to hurry here. So, so prior to Exodus 3, you, you find the name of God, but you find, I hate to say it this way, the generic name. for That's a terrible way to say it. If I had a better word, maybe the standard name for God. The um, common name for God, I don't know. It's Elohim, okay? But, but prior to this, that's what you mainly find. You find a couple other names for God, but mainly that. Okay, but in Exodus chapter 3, you find maybe the most significant passage in the Bible about the name of God, okay? So here's what happens. And by the way, we're going to look at this twice. We're going to look at it once, and then we're going to come back and look at it again, okay? So, so two times here, so be ready for that. Okay, so in Exodus chapter 3, here's what happens. Moses is in the wilderness. I'll make the, the story brief, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more later. He's in the wilderness, he's herding sheep, he walks by a bush, the thing is ablaze, all right, just ablaze with this flame, and yet it's not burning up. He stands there and watches it for a while, the bush is not burning up. So he goes, gets a little closer, you know, figure out what the deal is, and God speaks to him from the burning bush. In verse 6, he says, and he said, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at him. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Okay? So God speaks to Moses from the bush and says, I have seen the struggle that my people in Egypt are under, and I am going to deliver them. And then he pulls Moses into that. In verse uh, 10, he tells Moses, Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. All right, so Moses is herding his sheep. He wakes up that morning thinking he's going to do nothing but take care of sheep. He sees this bush ablaze. He walks over. God speaks to him, says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I'm going to deliver them out. And by the way, you're going to do it, okay? Then Moses asked the question that we all ask that is a stupid question, 
okay? And we need to stop asking it. Whenever God gives you a mission, we're all prone to ask this question, and it's the wrong one. Verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel? It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. I mean, really, it's inconsequential, okay? Moses is asking, well, you know, what talents do I have? What abilities do I have? What right do I have? What privilege do I have? Why should I go? It doesn't matter, Moses. It doesn't matter. God could have talked to a rock or a grasshopper and said the same thing and got the same result. God can do it right around. That's the wrong question. So finally, Moses gets around to the right question. We find that in verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? That's the right question. So Moses is shaking in his boots. He's, he's trembling. You know what to think. God's just given him this incredible mission. He just met the God of the universe. And he finally asked the right question. What's your name? This is what God says. Verse 14. By the way, this is pivotal in the Bible. Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I say it's crucial because 6,828 times later, we're going to find this verse, this word, this name of God in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? This is God's covenantal personal name. Okay? And so he says, I am. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me just start out saying this. You and I ought to meditate and think about and pray about that for the rest of our Christian lives and we'll never get to the end of it, okay? So when you ask me what does that mean, please don't think I'm giving you the total answer, okay? But what are some of the things that it means? Well, it means that God alone is the self-existing living one. In him is life. Do you you see what he's saying when he says, I am? He's saying, everything comes from me. I, I am the ultimate reality of the universe. All right? Everything comes from God. He is the power plant of energy and glory and ability. In Acts 17, 28, Paul says this about God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Do you understand that? In Him. Okay, in Him, we live and move and have our being. In other words, whatever you do, the fact that you're breathing, the fact that we have a place, the fact that atoms are holding together to form walls and carpet and pulpits and flesh, the fact that that is happening is because God is the I am. He is the ultimate reality of the universe. Colossians 1.16 says that all things are created by Him, through Him, for Him. He sustains all things. I like what John Piper said. Piper said, this truth must mean that he is energy. He is power. His personality is radiant with infinite energy. He never needs recharging. He never needs a backup system. There is nothing for him to plug into. Everything in the universe plugs in to him. If he ever shuts down, there would be absolute nothingness. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I am. I'm not one of many. I'm not, hey, I'm not the guy down the street, but there's another one down the corner there. You can check that guy out. No, he is. He he exists. He is the ultimate exister. Now, one of the things this does is shuts down the ridiculous American practice of making God out to be what we want him to be. Okay? 
Everybody else in the world does this, but at least they're honest about it. You know, they go ahead and name it something else, and, you know, they say, well, this is fuzzy, my God, you know, and uh, he's whatever, make up a story. Well, it, but here's what Americans do. Americans pretend that we're talking about the God of the universe, but then we make him something that he's not. Have you ever been to Build-A-Bear? You guys ever gone there? No? Some of you? Karen's been there. Been to Build-A-Bear? I don't ever want to go back. I've been there too many times, okay? I'm uh, kind of hoping it closes. Uh, but at Build-A-Bear, what you do is you don't buy a teddy bear. You get to build your own bear, right? So you pick out your skin. It's really kind of gruesome when you think about it, you know? And they they do the blow the stuffing in there, and then they sew him up, and, and then you get to put in his eyes, and you, I mean, you, get, you get to pick your bear and his clothes and hats, and they sell you all kinds of stuff you never need before, you know? And it, you, you build your own bear, okay? There, there are people, I mean, Every week, this week was not an exception of having somebody in my office that literally has not thought about who God is and they're building Him on the fly, like right in front of me. Well, I just know that my God wants me to be happy. What are you doing? You're building a God. I can't accept that God would let my relative get die. God would not do that. You're building Him. My God would never send anyone to an eternal hell. Unless you're talking about the Play-Doh, piece of Play-Doh you shaped last night in your kid's room. You don't get to define God. Do you see what he says in Exodus 3? I am who I am. I am. I'm the ultimate reality of the universe. Everything in this universe plugs into me. If it's unplugged, it ceases to exist. I am. Jesus revealed himself as this God, okay? John chapter 8, one of, one of the most important passages in the New Testament regarding the divinity of Jesus Christ is John 8. John eight fifty six, he says, Your father Abraham, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, a little chronology here. Abraham, okay? Thousands of years, Jesus. Okay, you get the picture? So everybody starts laughing. I picture, scoffing. You know, this guy's a loony. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. You're not even 50. And you're saying that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says this. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? I am. I am who I am. Now, this is not the only name of God, okay? What you're going to find is that in order for us to cover all the names of God in the Bible, we would need a 20-part sermon series, you know, where we covered four or five a time. All right, and so, so we're, we're not going to have time to do that, but let me give you some of the highlights, okay? So that was Moses in Exodus 3, okay? He goes to Egypt. He delivers the people out. He's going through some struggles. We'll talk about that in just a second. We're going to come back to this, okay? He's having some struggles, and so he prays. He asks God in verse 18 of chapter 33 of Exodus. He says, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. You know what God does? Verse 19, God says, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. That's very important. God says, Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, okay, I'll tell you my name. Show me your glory. Okay, I'll tell you my name. What does that mean? That means when, when we know his name, we're seeing his glory. Okay, and so what does God say? Well, he says the personal name for God, Yahweh, okay, the Lord. And then, but he continues, he adds, he shows more of himself. He says, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's Exodus 33, 19. So, so Moses says, show me your glory. And so God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he goes, passes by, and he says, the Lord, or Yahweh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now, what is God revealing to Moses? God is revealing to Moses that he is free, okay? He is totally free. He is full of grace and mercy, and he is free to bestow it on anyone he pleases. Okay? In other words, whatever God does is right. That's not so with any of us. None of us are really free. Let me give an example. If I take you out to lunch today, this is purely an illustration. If I take you out to lunch today, (laughs) tomorrow your car is broken down by the side of the road. I see you. I stop. I pull over. I, I have you jump in. I take you to work so you're not late. And then I come back and I, I, I get a tow truck and I get your car to the mechanic and I pay for the repairs and I deliver your car to your workplace by the end of the workday so that you don't, you're never at without a car. And then the next day, Tuesday, I stop by your house and you're, you're out there, your, your sewer's plugged up and I got a sewer snake and I'm like, hey, you just go on to work and I unplug your sewer for you. Wednesday, you're late at work and, and your kids at soccer and my kids at soccer. And I'm like, hey, I call you. Hey, I'll get your kid. I, I, I pick up your kid. I take him, get something to eat, bring him by the house for you. You don't, you don't ever miss a beat. Thursday, I pull some strings and I get you an interview with the company that you always wanted to work for. And I put in a good word for you. And you get to interview with that company. And you get the job. Friday, I need a shovel. Can I borrow a shovel? Now, whether you want to give it to me or not, you probably feel some pressure, don't you? You probably feel some internal angst that, you know what? Y'all let me borrow your shovel, okay? Now, let's change it up a bit. Today, we, all, we both go to lunch at Big Dan's. And after you load your plate up enormously big at the food bar, I come by and I'm just playing around and I knock it out of your hand. It goes all over. I, I walk away real quick. You're horribly embarrassed. Tuesday. I see you broken down by the side of the road. I slow down just enough to roll down to my window and I yell, See you later, sucker! (laughs) Wednesday, we're both at the soccer game. I yell at my kid to elbow your kid. And he does, knocks him down and my kid scores on you. And I'm over there chanting, We are the champions. Thursday, I slander you. I say some bad things about you to the boss of the company that you've always wanted to work for. And you don't get the job. Friday. Can I borrow a shovel? Now some of you are such good Jesus-like people that you would lend it to me. But you would not want to, would you? You'd want to hit me with the shovel. You'd feel a lot of pressure the other way. Okay, listen. God is the great I am. He is gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. It is perfectly right and good for God to send every one of us to hell. 
And if he does, if he would do that, we would every one of us cup our mouths and have nothing to say at the judgment because he would be right. Okay, we like to think that God owes us. We like to think that, you know, when something bad happens, we're like, God, what, what are you doing? What in the world? Well, here's the reality. God owes none of us nothing. But at the same token, God is incredibly gracious to reach down out of heaven and pluck our sinful, sorry selves out of the muck and mire of sin and place us as heirs with His own Son, Jesus Christ, in the eternity. He is gracious to whom He will be gracious. He'll have mercy on whom He'll have mercy. God is free. Now, those are a couple. We could go in the New Testament. They're there too. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a Lunchable. And then He says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Okay? Jesus raises a dead man in John 11. Four days in the grave. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The names of God, they're everywhere. God's revealing his glory. Okay? Now, go back to Psalm 9. Okay? So let's think through this. Okay? So the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold for those in times of trouble. How do we make God our stronghold? How do we get in that stronghold? How, how, do, how do we get in that place of safety and rest? Well, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. There's something about knowing God's name that gives us confidence in His sufficiency. God is sufficient for what I need. So the more you know Him, the, the more you're like, yes, He, he is everything I need. That's, that's, not the so, that's, not, that's not the case with everything. The more you know about some things, the less you want it, right? Yeah, have, you, have you ever house shopped and that been the case? Like you, you, pulled, you were driving down the street and you saw a house for sale, and you're like, that is the one. Man, that, that, is, that is everything. That's everything. Look at that porch. Look at the siding. Look at the, look at the location. Look at that big tree. Look at the swing. This is everything you ever wanted. You call the realtor. You're like, I want to know more about that house. And he comes over. And you go in the front door. And knowing more means wanting it less, right? You, you realize that that person had 43 cats and 29 dogs. And they did not believe in vacuuming. And the carpet is polka dot, not on purpose, right? And you're like, okay, I want this less. Knowing more made me want this less. That is never the case with God, okay? Knowing more of God always makes you more confident that He's everything you need. More at rest. More of a stronghold in time of trouble, time of pressure, okay? Let's, let's just go back and look at the passages we just looked at and see if that was the case, and it absolutely was. Exodus chapter 3, so Moses, you know, he doesn't want to go. Who am I? Who am I? You know, you should send me, God. And then he asks the right question, who are you, God? And as God reveals himself as the great I am, Moses is able to walk into Egypt and bring the people out. An even better context is Exodus 33. I, I, I got I to gotta tell you this story more thoroughly because it's just a great story. So in Exodus 33, um, Moses has been leading the children of Israel to the promised land, but they've had some bumps in the road, right? First of all, these people complain like nobody's business. I mean, they are constantly whining. They're constantly complaining. They're constantly grumbling. Nothing is ever good enough. They always forget that God has delivered them, and they, they want to go back to Egypt. They're, they're a little bit like us, okay? And, and, and in 32, chapter 32 of Exodus, you have the whole golden calf fiasco. And then in chapter 33, here's what God says. I, I love this. I can so identify with this. God says in verse 3 of chapter 33, Exodus, 
Go, he told Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, Moses, go to the promised land. Go ahead, go. But I will not go up among you. I'm not going with you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Have you ever been on a road trip with a bunch of kids? You know? About 24, 5 hours into the car trip on the second day. You stop at a gas station. And you get out. And you say, you guys go on. You go on to Disney World, but I'm not coming with you lest I consume you along the way. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not going with you, because if I go, I'll kill you. You know, (laughs) I've had enough. God's saying that. Isn't that great? Enough. I mean, they're just rebellious, grumbling, complaining, whining. Not doing what he says. Here's where Moses really shines. Moses says, God, if you don't go, I'm not going. I'm not going without you. I can't. I got to have you. God's like, I'll send an angel. Moses is like, no, I'm going with you. So, verse 14, same chapter. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says, I'll go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest. Verse 15, Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, then do not do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I, will, and I know you by name. And then Moses says, Show me your glory. Now, let's put this in the context. Complaining, whining, grumbling. I want to go back. Golden calf, rebellion. God says, I've had enough. Moses knows it. He knows they've messed up. God, I I won't go on without you. God's like, okay, I'll go with you. And then, you know know why Moses is saying, show me your glory? Because he's feeling a little bit insecure. He's like, how are we ever going to make it? We keep messing up. We keep failing. God, show me your glory. And that's when God reveals his name. I am gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll have mercy on you. Do you get the context now? God's saying, listen, Moses. I'm the kind of God who gives grace even when you don't deserve it. I'm the kind of God who gives mercy to whoever I want to. And I've told you I'd give mercy to you. So get your courage and go to the promised land. Isn't that great? You see, that, that's Psalm 9 in action. That, that's, those who know your name put their trust in you. Moses can now make the Lord his stronghold because he, he knows his name. Abraham. Let's look at a couple instances in Abraham's life. So in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham gets called to leave Ur, to leave where he's living, go to the promised land. He's going to promise descendants. He's going to, he's, from his descendants, he's going to be the promised deliverer who's going to save the world. Okay, but big problem. 24 years passes and Abraham still has no son. You ever get discouraged when things don't seem to be happening as quickly as you want them to? Abraham did. And in Genesis chapter 16, he and Sarah do a really dumb thing. They take Hagar as Abraham's second wife. And from that union was Ishmael. 
And from Ishmael came a whole lot of trouble today, even today. And so it's in Genesis 17 that God appears to Abraham. And what what's, he needs to boost Abraham's faith, okay? He needs to renew the covenant. And so guess what he does? He reveals his name, a new name. Not a new one, but an extension of his name. Genesis 17, 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai is what that is. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you, me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall no longer be the father, you shall you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. What does God do for Abraham? He reveals his name. And Abraham trusts him. Genesis 22. Abraham has the son Isaac. And then you remember what happens? God says, okay, now give him back. Take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham obeys. He takes that long, torturous walk, that terrible journey with his one and only son Isaac, binds him to the altar and raises the knife. And then God speaks from heaven. The angel speaks from heaven. Stop, Abraham. Abraham turns around and there's a ram caught in the thicket. The ram is Isaac's substitute. It's what Jesus would be for you. And then you know, what, you know what Abraham does? He says, God, I see your new name. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Or Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. All right, are you seeing how Psalm 9 works? The Lord is your stronghold. For the oppressed, the crushed, the stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name, they put their trust in you. Last book of the Bible, Revelation. This happens all through the Bible. John is about to write the end of all things. Okay? What's going to happen at the end? Well, how do we know? Well, we don't know who's going to win. Hillary or Trump, you know, or, or whoever. How do we know things are going to be okay? Well, in Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's he saying? I started this thing and I'll finish it. I began it and I'll close it. And it doesn't matter what happens in between, I'm finishing it this way because I am the Alpha and the Omega. See what God's doing? He's revealing his name to show you that he is sufficient. That's our problem. We start thinking he's not sufficient. He can't handle this. That we got to go somewhere else for our stronghold. No, 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 no. You're just not seeing who he is. He's sufficient for every need. Last point. I told you we need to know God's name, trust God's name. And then you're going to see this in the Psalms over and over and over again. We need to speak, sing, tell, testify about his name. Okay, look at verse 11. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Tell people what God has done. In fact, if you start out in Psalm 9, look at the first verse, okay? You got four I wills. Are you ready? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. That means I'm going to tell them. I will be glad, this is verse 2, and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, 
one might think that maybe that's just the result, right? Like maybe once you see his glory and you see who he is, then it's just an overflow. Absolutely, I agree with you. But, but, it, but it's more. Singing and telling of God's great name is a way of knowing his name more. It's a way of knowing his name better. There's something about the act of telling the glorious deeds of the Lord that stirs up your own trust in him. You need to testify. You need to sing. It's not a formality we do. This is a faith-building exercise when we sing. It is, it is telling what God is, who God is, what He's done. We used to have a sweet gentleman named Lloyd Elston. Sat in this service. Sunday night, we would have a testimony time. Does anybody have something to share? If you didn't, Lloyd would take your time. And he would share. And we all knew what he was going to say because we'd heard him. There's four or five stories that were really good. He's going to tell them to you again and again. You know, a lot of us maybe thought, he's telling the same story. We've, we already know that. That's not the point. The point is there's something incredibly powerful about telling what God's done in your life. Amen. Have you given your testimony this week? Have, have, and I'm not just talking about your conversion experience. It could be something God did. What did God do this week? What did he do last week? Are you telling that? Are you recounting his deeds? If your faith is dried up, if it's shriveling, it could be because you're not revealing his name. Those who know his name put their trust in him. Father, I pray that you'd be a stronghold. God, a stronghold for those who are crushed, those who are oppressed in time of trouble, in time of need. God, I ask you to show yourself as completely sufficient for all that we need. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?